Take your Bible this morning with me and head to Psalm 131. At this time, kids ages kindergarten through third grade are welcome to join Miss Heather out in the hallway. And the other children, there's childcare in the back there. They can uh, head out also as well. Our kids are important to us. They're a heritage of the Lord is what Scripture tells to us. And so we want to invest in their lives. And that's what the volunteers and the people back there who spend time with our kids on Sunday morning, that's their aim is to, is to care for our children, to ex- express the truth of, of the gospel uh, to them with regularity, with consistency. Um, this morning, although there's not maybe a whole lot of pomp and circumstance around it, despite a, a table full of cupcakes, which I hear are delicious, uh, this morning represents the, the third, the beginning of the fourth year of Buffalo City Church's existence. Uh, October 4th of 2015, we had our first corporate worship gathering, um, and many of you were in this room were there for that, and many of you have joined us since. Uh, but we want to praise God this morning for what he's done for us. Uh, it's been an incredible, an incredible three years. God has blessed us time and time again. And we've been worshiping together for that amount of time. And we just want to acknowledge this morning that this is his, his work. Oftentimes people come to me and say things like your church or this or that or Mark's or that or whatever. These, these are not a result of the fruit of my efforts. These are, this is God in his work and our, our desire simply to be obedient to what he calls us to in, in his word. Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, that says that he will build his church. And that needs to be a daily reminder for all of us who, who identify with Buffalo City Church, that Jesus is the one who builds his church. No effective guest follow-up strategy, no effective uh, model for community groups or however we choose to organize ourselves is a substitute for the fact that Jesus says that he will build his church. So this morning, it's in him we place our trust. Three years in, we want to continue to trust him. Um, Three years in, our greatest aim as a church must be primarily, first and foremost, if here this morning and you're part of Buffalo City Church, your aim and our aim together must primarily be to make Jesus known. The confession that every church, every professing church must, must hold to is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, what, that's a primary marker of the church. And so there is nothing greater that we have to offer the world than Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater than we have to offer our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our unbelieving family members and our friends than, than Jesus Christ. I think God, by his grace, has fixed us there. I think that, that we are moving forward in this as a church, but we have growing to do. And so I want to celebrate with you what God has done in our midst. I hope that you'll celebrate with me by eating a cupcake, but primarily, even more so than that, I, I hope that we'll celebrate together by going to this table later. This table, which is a representation which shows us what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Again, a broken body, a body broken on our behalf, fulfilling, completely, perfectly obedient, stood, Jesus Christ stood where we could not shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we celebrate this morning. These are the things that that we have put our uh, driven a stake down into and say, this is where we stand. 
In church planning, the three-year mark is important. Three years is where things begin to solidify. This is what everyone says. We're not, I've never been there, so we're entering this. So, so we're entering this together. So when you get to three years, everything begins to solidify. And God has brought us a long ways, but we have, again, a lot of growing to do. So what I'm going to ask of you is, I see you all staring at the screen already, so that must be already there. I, want, I just want, would you please pray with me this week? Would you please pray with me this week? Don't, don't let this week go by without praying for these handful of things. Um, and we can publish these, these later. But would you make an intentional effort? Just as we consider and we enter, we've got to year three now, we're moving to year four. What does it look like for us to continue to grow, not only numerically, but spiritually as a church? How can we together be a people who rest on and continue to focus on the profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? So first there, you see that that's the prayer. Pray that we would be a church that holds firm to our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he's the only way to the Father. Friends, if we lose this, we lose everything. If we lose this, we lose everything. Secondly, pray that we would pursue the mission to make disciples with reckless abandon. This is vital. This is absolutely 100% essential because this is the last command that Jesus gives to us before he ascended into heaven. He said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then what does he do? He promises that he's with us, even at the end of the age. And he sends us a helper, the power that we need to carry out the commission that he gives us. And Matthew 28, 18 through 20, comes through the spirit of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have the spirit of Christ. Thirdly, then, pray that the word of God would be central in our lives and in the life of our church. Friends, if we're not feasting on the word of God regularly, with consistency, we're going to lose one and we're going to lose two. Let me say that again. If we're not feasting on the word of God regularly, corporately, and individually, we will lose one, and we will lose two. Pray that we would make this central in our lives and the life of our church. If we ever move away from this book, I hope that you would come to me and say something. I don't know. And pray that God, the gospel would inform all that we do as a church. Again, secondarily, that, that Jesus' sacrifice is God's greatest expression of love, and therefore we must love, forgive, sacrifice for one another, pursue humility, and seek redemption and restoration among all peoples. If the gospel informs what we do, it informs all of our interactions, and at the top of this list is love, forgiveness, sacrifice, pursuit of humility, redemption, restoration. These are our aims as a church to see these things happen, to see these things take place amongst the people of God and amongst an, a world that is in desperate need of knowing their creator. Fifthly then, pray that we would be generous and use our resources well. We as a church have been placed in an unprecedented position to see some significant things I think in our region happen. Um, we have kept things simple from a budgetary perspective. And if you're a member, you know that. Tomorrow we have a family meeting. We're going to talk about quarter three finances. So if you're a member, please plan to be there. Buffalo City Church Community Room at 630. Sorry. But 
we as a church, I think, are prepared to and ready to enter into a season where we can support significant amount of church planning efforts and other ministries that are, that are helping the gospel move forward in our community. So pray that we would continue to be generous and that we would use our, our resources well. And then finally this morning, I would say this. Praise God with me for the work that he has done in and through Buffalo City Church. I want you to like look back at the things that God has done. Maybe he's something that's been communicated or a watershed moment when you spent time together with people in your community group. Maybe it was a, a moment where you felt as though, uh, you felt as though your, your, the depth of your relationship with your creator uh, moved to a place that it had never been before. Pray that God would continue to be glorified by using us as a humble vessel to carry out his purposes here in North Dakota. So I wanted to say that this morning. I want to celebrate together, but I also want to look towards the future and say, God, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go together as a group of people on a Sunday morning, October 7th, 2018, Jamestown, North Dakota? God, where would you take us? So pray that those things would be, that these things would be a reality, our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the pursuit of the mission, the centrality of the word of God, the information of the gospel and all that we do, the generosity that we are called to as God's people, and then the praise for, to God for what he has done and will continue to do. I have to say to you that I, I'm incredibly blessed by all of you that if you were to tell me five years ago that I would be standing here on a Sunday morning preaching to you in Jamestown, North Dakota, I would have probably thought that you were crazy. Um, God has blessed me in incredible ways through you all, every single one of you. Maybe we don't know each other that well. Maybe you're visiting this morning. But God, God, has, God has blessed me in incredible ways. I'm honored to be here with you this morning. I'm honored to see God's work in your life. I pray that that continues in the upcoming days and years. Psalm 131, then, that's where we're going this morning. Take your Bible, head to Psalm 131. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a stack in the back. Go ahead and put your hand in the air. Larry would be happy to bring you one. It's important that you have this in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it's important that you have this in front of you. I say this pretty regularly, but Psalm 131, if you look at the things that I'm about to say, and you, you need to see them before your eyes to make sure that I'm not, I'm not making these things up. So, Psalm 131, uh, let's read this together. There are only three verses. It's a very short, very short psalm. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's truth. God, we thank that we can gather together and that we can look at it together. Lord, I pray this morning that these words that, that come from me would not come from me, but come from you. Lord God, that we would know you better through what you've revealed to us about who you are in, in your word. God, may these truths resonate in our heart throughout the week as we go from here. God, you may you make us a people 
God, would you cause us to be a people who are, have calmed and quieted souls, who rest in the simplicity of our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. For many of you this morning, and for me also, although it wasn't really up to me this morning, but trying to get out of the, the door with small children is a pretty difficult task, right? I'm, many of you who have little kids this morning know that this is the case. You know that this is the case. Tev, our four-year-old, it's always Tev. He's always the example, so he's going to be the example this morning again. Tev, our four-year-old, uh, is particularly good at adding complexity to simple tasks when we're ready to walk out the front door or the back door, whatever door we're walking out of. So you know, cool temperatures came quickly, um, too quickly. Uh, so all our sandals are still out by the door, right? <laughs> so you see where this is going. We were on our way out the door, and he decided that he wanted to wear his sandals. And I said, no, you need to go get socks and wear shoes. And he hung his head, and he just went, oh. And he ran to his room to get socks. And as I was working to help the other children, as we were about to leave the apartment, I noticed that he had no socks on, no shoes on, and his sandals on. And I told him to take them off and put his socks on and his shoes on. But he said, but he really wanted to wear his sandals. I really want to wear my sandals, Dad, is what he said. And I said, no, that's not an option because, one, I'm Dad, and I told you not to, and two, because it's really cold outside. And he reluctantly appeared to comply, but then he put on his shoes without socks, and I said, no, buddy, you need socks on, too. And he takes off his shoes and puts on one sock and one shoe and one sandal. And I said, no, you need to take down two socks and two shoes. And he said, uh-uh. And then it's socks off, shoes on, wrong feet. Your shoes are on the wrong feet. Sock on, shoes off, jacket comes off. And I found myself saying to him, buddy, it's simple. Nothing has changed since the last time we left the house. Nothing has changed. Socks, shoes, jacket, zipped. And the words that came out of my mouth resonated when I started thinking about this psalm. I said, buddy, nothing has changed. It's plain and simple. Socks, shoes, jacket, zip, no other option, plain and simple. I think the way that I just described Tev looking to me as his father is oftentimes how we look to God as our heavenly father. One sandal on, one sock on, one shoe on a hand. I don't know. What God requires of us isn't, isn't complicated. And remember last week we talked about this, the three things that we say that when we go to scripture, we need to be cognizant of. We need to be aware of three things when we're looking first and most importantly is who is God? What is this text communicating to me about who God is? And secondly, then who are we in light of who God is? And then thirdly, what does God require of me as his, as his child? In Luke 10, a lawyer asked Jesus how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asks him, Jesus is brilliant at this. He asks him very specifically, he says, he says well, how do you, what is it written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer correctly answers him. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think, I think that we so often overcomplicate things. We're putting on socks, wrong feet, sandals on, whatever, however it looks. And we say, yeah, God, I love you with my heart, soul, strength, but not this corner of my mind. That's for something else. Or we say, some of this or some of that, some of my strength, some of my mind, some of my soul. 
some of my heart. Or let's just leave the strength out of the equation. Or let's just narrow that definition of neighbor. Generally not that guy. Or let's narrow the definition of love. I'll love unless I'm, I'm inconvenienced. And we make what God requires of us more like rules to English grammar. Right? I before E except after C and then the 500 other exceptions that you can think of. But God's word to us is simple. It's not the tax code. And that's what David's intent here and the message here in Psalm 131. He gives it to us straight. He just says, slow down. Take a deep breath. Don't overcomplicate things. So two things I want to I point out this morning from this psalm. Kind of in that vein, the slow down, take a deep breath, don't overcomplicate things vein. Two things that we see in this psalm. First and primarily in verse 1, we see the pursuit of humility. The pursuit of humility. And then secondly, we see the acknowledgement of the simplicity of relationship with God. The acknowledgement of the simplicity of the relationship with God. So these two things. First, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This is the pursuit of humility first and foremost. And we can really begin to see through the lens exactly who we are because we've begun to ask the question, who is God in our study of Scripture? And when we look at this and we look at verse 1, we can state the relationship that we have with God pretty simply. God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. Now you say, well, that's obvious. Of course, that, of course that's true. But friends, consider again our tendency to overcomplicate things. We should take our cues from, from King David here. David was, in a very real sense, the, the embodiment of simplicity and of humility. He was the last of Jesse's sons, a shepherd boy. He didn't even get the call to come in from the field when Samuel showed up to anoint Israel's next king. David is the last son. His life is that of a simple shepherd. His beginnings are humble. And yet, as his life went on, things became increasingly complex. But he chooses to look back. He chooses to go back to the, the heart of the matter and say that his heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high and he does not occupy himself with things too marvelous for him. And so even though he's king of Israel at his peak of political and military prominence, he writes Psalm 131. And look at the, look at the language that he uses. He picks two things here. Two things that are contained within him. He says, my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. Why does he pick heart and why does he pick eyes? Why does he pick those two things? His heart indicates where his affections lie. What does he love? What does King David love? And his eyes indicates what he perceives to be true about the world around him. What does he perceive? What does he know? So what does he love? And what does he know? And we see very clearly then in Psalm 131 that he has affection for simple truths about his God. He has an affection 
for simple truths about his God. And he does not move his gaze above unrevealed things. What, what does that mean? What does it mean that he has an affection for the simple truths of God? One, it means that he sees the things that God is and, is, and has love for God simply because of who he is. He has love for God simply because of who God is. A, a problem with Christianity often is that we just focus on the things that God does. Now, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to think about who God does because what God does flows directly from who God is. Right? We talked about that a little bit last week. God is a forgiving God and therefore he forgives. God is a faithful God and therefore he, he, he lives up to all that he says that he is. But our love for God should also flow just from who he is. This is, a, this is a graduation away from seeing just the simple things that we receive to the source of, of them. So our love for God should also flow just from who he is. He's creator. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's patient. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's just. He's faithful. So when we look at Psalm 131, we ask ourselves the question, do we regularly acknowledge these simple truths about who God is? And I'm going to posit that the answer oftentimes is no. Oftentimes we don't just reflect on these simple traits that Scripture communicates to us about who God is. Do we, do we meditate on these truths? Is our love for God growing simply because of these things? So, what does it mean that David has affection for the simple truths of God? It means that the things of God, uh, the things that God is, and the love that He has for Him is just because of who He is. It, but, then, but then we ask ourselves the question, so that's, a, that's kind of like the heart portion, right? My, my heart is not lifted too high up and my eyes are not raised too high. So then we ask, ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that David doesn't move his gaze to unrevealed things? And when I say unrevealed, I mean things that are not explicitly stated about who God is in Scripture. Again, a lot of Christians find themselves obsessed over things that are simply not found in God's word. Intricate details about the second coming, intricate details about exact events of the individual's life, or an overemphasis on geography and borders in the modern world. And I'm convinced that we as people, we drift towards what could this mean or what could this current event mean for me and my life or what could this decision by this elected official mean? Because here, I mean, we have a tendency to get bored with what we see here. Why? Why? Because we haven't done what David has said. We have attempted to raise our, our heart too high and our eyes too high. And when we see verse 2, we'll see David's actions as a calm to go. We'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So we have the tendency to grow bored just with the simple things that we see here in the text about who God is. We're, we're just like, okay, yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. 
Okay, God created, he created everything good, and he's loving and gracious and patient, good, got that down. Now we can just get to the point of Christians to go to this conference where they predict the end of, or the, the return of Jesus. Let's do that. Let's go now. I get that God is all of that stuff, but when do I, when do I raise, when do I know if I should get a raise, or when do I know if I should move to Memphis or pursue my life goal of becoming a dolphin trainer, whatever it is, these are the sorts of things that we're asking God and we're saying, we should like, why, why don't you just give us all of these, these unrevealed things? When, when do I need to do these things? But again, David slows it down for us here. David slows it down for us. Our focus as God's people should be on this simple truth that God lays before us about who he has revealed himself to be in his word. Knowing God means plumbing the depths of the adjectives he ascribes to himself. Again, creating, creator, loving, forgiving, patient, merciful, gracious, just, faithful, more. There's so many more. And so then we pursue humility. That's our point, right? We pursue humility. How? David tells us, focusing on the simple truths revealed in God's word about who he is and subsequently growing in affection for our God. Arrogance says there's more here. There's more here. I can unlock something extra, something special. Early in the church, there was a a significant heresy that popped up called, called Gnosticism. And where it intersected with the church. Paul and John, in their letters, uh, uh, approach and talk through and, and attack and deal with some forms of Gnosticism in their New Testament letters. So as far as Gnosticism inter- intersected with the, new, or the early church, the, it's basically the idea that in order to be saved, you must come to some special knowledge or have some special experiences to be saved. And Gnosticism also basically claimed that God was much less knowable, much less knowable than what is communicated in his word. So, that means you have to be part of an elite group of of Christians in order to, or an elite group of Gnostics to know know God. So, there are endless problems with this heresy. It's why it's a heresy, so we won't dive into all of them. But the reality is a small amount, I think, of Gnosticism lingers in Christian culture today. I think it hangs out. And I think we're okay with it. And I think we need to kill it. Many Christians rely heavily on their experiences as a determiner of truth. Many Christians grow bored with the simple truths in Scripture and seek special knowledge elsewhere. And many Christians count themselves among an elite group because they think in a particular way. And all of these things are arrogance. They say, I need more information. I need more experience than what's given to me in God's word. What has God seen fit to tell me about who he is? But I need more. Remember last week we thought about Genesis 3. In particular, we thought about the fall. Satan's deception, what Satan says to Eve, is primarily a knowledge-based deception. Think about Genesis 3, 5. He says to her, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened in a perception sort of way, in a knowledge sort of way, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But humility, friends, humility is resting in the simple revealed truths of God set before us about himself and his word. 
And the pursuit of humility then is spending time in the Bible and seeking to drill deep into the simple revelation of who God is. Because the more we know our God, friends, the more we realize that we are not Him. How do we pursue humility? By knowing the one who made us. We're not Him. Second thing that we see in verse 2 primarily is the acknowledgement of the simplicity of relationship with God. Now there's a tension here. But verse 2 says, I calmed and quieted my spirit like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child, my soul is within me. Now, <laughs> we just had two babies, so the reality of an unweaned child is very real. And I'm going insane. No, I'm not. It's great. It's wonderful. My wife just looked at me like, but just like, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and just like, okay, all right, trying to keep it together, just feed the baby, demands, okay. Go back to sleep. Okay, now you got to be changed. Okay, you know what I'm saying. The majority of the responsibility falls to the, the mother. Thank you, dear. You're wonderful. I love you. And we have really two content babies for the most part. But still, since babies really can't do anything for themselves, like they can't even hold their heads up. I have to hold their head up. They grow discontent and demand to eat or be changed or just to be held. A, a weaned child, on the other hand, is the, 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 the picture that David has for us. Like a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child is simply content just to be with his or her mother. This week, Tev, again, always the example. Rebecca told me this week, he was spending time just reading books and talking with her on the couch, and it was just a really sweet moment because he just looked at her and he said, Mom, I just love being with you and talking with you. Nothing special. Simply Rebecca's presence was enough. It was enough for Tev in that moment. He was content just spending time with her. I made her cry, I'm sorry. Love you. Didn't mean to point that out. Oh, no. And King David is communicating how he is content simply with God's presence. He's calmed. He's quieted his soul. And he's found contentment. Again, in a complex world, our souls are rarely calmed and quieted. There's always a phone call to make. There's always a task to accomplish. There's always social media platform to check. There's always a thing to do. And our to-do list, our tasks, our deadlines make us feel anxious. They make us feel stressed out. And King David knew about these things. Again, humble beginnings, starting out as a simple shepherd boy, the last of Jesse's sons, who didn't even get the call in from the field when Samuel came to anoint the next king. But then he found himself as king. I don't, being king, there's lots of responsibilities by default. And King David wasn't without his problems, family problems, repercussions of his own sinful actions. And yet here he works to calm and quiet his soul. Why could David calm and quiet his soul? Because the simple truths of God were not far from him. 
the simple truths of what does God communicate about who he is. David rests in those truths and he sits there, he camps out there, he marinades in them. He bathes in these truths. He didn't lift up his heart. He didn't raise his eyes too high. He knew his God and he rested there. So we ask the question, so what? So what? What, what, what is, how does this psalm impact our day to day? I mean, there's a million ways. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you three. The first one might appear a little counterintuitive. That's okay. Bear with me. The first one is don't be afraid of theology. Don't be afraid of theology. One of the more unfortunate things I think that has happened in the church over the last several hundred years is the professionalization of theology. Do not think that the pastor gets paid to do theology so that you don't have to. Don't think that. That's not my job. And you say, well, that sounds out of my league. When I do theology, what does that even mean? Theology simply means the study of God. The study of God. Where do we go to study who God is? We go to his word. We go to the simple revealed truths of scripture. So when you go to the Bible and you ask, what is this telling me about who God is? Friends, you're doing theology. You are. And maybe you're saying, well, isn't that raising my, uh, my heart too high and lifting my eyes up? Isn't it the warning of this text? And the short answer is no, it's not. The text is a warning going outside of God's simple revelation. Theology begins through simple exploration of God's word. And last week we thought about God's forgiving nature. He is a God who forgives. He sent his son to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thought about God's faithfulness. Said God is a forgiving God. He will not ignore you if you call out to him. He is always true to his nature. If his nature is forgiving, he says that he will forgive all those that are his. And you have trusted Jesus. That means that he set forth for you forgiveness. Then you are forgiven. That's not a complex idea. But it's grounded in who God is. It's not a complex idea, but it is, in fact, theological. You don't need a degree from a seminary to understand them. You don't need a degree from Bible college to understand them. But you do need to be a disciple, and you do need to go to God's Word, and you need to know Him through His Word and commit to it, not tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next year. You don't need a New Year's resolution. You need, you need to do this, commit to it for the rest of your life. Friends, if you were to drill into the simple revealed truths of who God is for the rest of your life, just take his forgiveness and his faithfulness. If you were to drill into those simple revealed truths about who God is for the rest of your lives, you'd never hit the bottom. You'd never hit the bottom. This is what we need to realize together as God's people. There's not something additional. There's nothing extra here. The simple truths the deeper you go, the more glorious the truth becomes. The wonder that comes through knowing God will not come to those who ignore their Bibles, though. 
And if you ignore your Bible, even though God's simple traits are more glorious than anything you could ever find anywhere else, if you ignore your Bible, you will find yourself bored and lifting your eyes to things unrevealed. So first thing, again, don't be afraid of theology. Go to the Bible, find an adjective that God uses for himself, and meditate on it, marinate in it, bathe in it. Allow it to be the thing where your thoughts go when their thoughts go when you're when you're tempted to send your thoughts somewhere else. Secondly, then, take away this: find contentment in the relationship you have with your God. If you're here this morning and you've repented of your sin and you've trusted Jesus as the only way to get to God the Father, if that's true of you. You don't need to be fearful or anxious. And this psalm communicates one very real reason why. You can, like David, have a calmed and quieted soul. If you're here this morning, I guarantee you have a million things going on. That's just the society we live in. Very rarely do have people have free time. Everyone does. It's the reality of life. Work deadlines, new projects, old projects, your family, managing personal finances, managing every, whatever. It goes on and on. You have a million things to do. You're probably thinking about them right now. But even though you're being pulled in a ton of directions, there's one thing that ultimately matters. Friends, you know what it is. It's your relationship with and to your creator. It's the one thing that ultimately matters. And if you're in Christ this morning, I'm speaking to you, if you're in Christ that relationship has been finalized. You can calm and quiet your soul because there's nothing more that you need to do to establish that right relationship with him. It has been and it always will be established with him because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Fulfilling responsibilities and accomplishing tasks cannot and will not change your status with your creator. And so you can go to his word and you can spend time in prayer and know you stand in right relationship with him. And you can be content, just like a young child is content in the presence of his or her parent. A mother's love isn't contingent on your child's performance and God's love for you isn't contingent on yours. Rather, it's contingent on the performance of Jesus Christ. He performed, and so that we don't have to. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, he says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't write that we have peace with God when we get stuff done, or when we perform well, or when we have our best life now. That's not what Paul writes. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That relationship that you have with your creator, if you're in Christ, is finalized. Therefore, you can calm and quiet your soul because there is literally nothing on this earth that can change it. Finally, then, last thing that I would say as a takeaway. Let your aim be maturity. Let your aim be maturity. And what I mean by that is, what I mean by that is Christian maturity. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? 
Colossians 1, 28 and 29 has, has really personally been an emphasis for me and how God is growing me personally. Paul writes this. He says, him we proclaim, this is Jesus, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So I've asked the question of God frequently. I've asked in prayer, I've said, how do I approach my work as a pastor? And then these three or these two verses won't stop rattling around in my head. How do I approach my work as a pastor? I think there's four things here. First, I proclaim Jesus. Secondly, I warn of the perils of this world and of indwelling sin. Third, I pray for wisdom that I may teach sound doctrine. And fourth, I pray that God would work these things in me, not for personal gain, but so that you all may be presented mature in Christ. And then verse 29 I work as hard as I can, knowing that any work that I do is not mine, but it's God's. And the goal of this work is to see maturity in Christ. And even though I could never bring that about in you, literally never could bring that about in you, that's totally up to God, I still toil and struggle. And friends, when I say that this is my goal as a pastor, it's not exclusively the goal of the pastor. It's the goal of every single person in this room, if you're in Christ, is to prevent, pre prevent present your, the people on your left and your right as mature in Christ. You should long to present the brothers and sisters to the left and right mature in Christ. How can you encourage one another in your community groups to know God through his word? Could you get together with someone this week and intentionally about promoting the person, that person to meditate on simple truths of God revealed in his word? Could, could I be describing discipleship? Yes, I'm describing discipleship. Thanks for asking. Simply, how can we, just ask this question, simply, how can we marvel at the simple revealed truths of who God is this week? Just pick one thing and say something about it to someone. God is a forgiving God. Isn't that an incredible truth? Isn't it an incredible truth? God is faithful. He always does exactly what he says he will do in accordance with who he is. Is that not a marvelous truth? Again, overcomplicating is what we do, though. So the point here is this, though. The point here is this. Let your aim be Christian maturity. We ask, how can I do that? Again, practical steps. What practical steps I can take? We read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14 this morning as a call to worship. Meditate on all of the things that that communicates about who God is this week. Take that home with you. Write that one down. Psalm 103, 1 through 14. Take all of the things. First glance, this is my, just my first glance of this text. I wrote these, I don't know how many, multiple things down. Forgiving. God is a God who forgives. He heals. He redeems. He loves. He's merciful. He's satisfied. He is just. He is knowable. He is patient. He is generous. And he is compassionate. That's just first glance at that text. And meditate on those simple truths and traits of God. Contentment, Christian contentment, maturity comes through the meditation on the simple truths of who God is. On the other hand, 
Discontent is a sign of Christian immaturity because it indicates an unfamiliarity or outright ignorance to the wonderful, majestic, yet simple truths of who God is. So, if you're saying, yes, but let my aim be maturity. Okay, so I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go to Psalm 103, read the first 14 verses, meditate on who God says he is there. But, but what exactly is Christian maturity? Christian maturity, friends, is this. It's not being well-versed in the complex. That's what it's not. It's not being well-versed in the complex, but it is a calmed and quieted soul that is graduated from the likeness of a child demanding milk and diaper changes from its parent and is content just with the presence of God. That, friends, is Christian maturity. When the world is happening, when things are swirling around you, when you feel like you're in and over your head, the one who is mature in Christ will go to the simple revealed truths about God and be able to have a calmed and quieted soul. Again, there is nothing that you can do right now that is going to bring that to fruition this week. You're going to think to yourself, oh, okay, that's simple. It's a simple formula. I'm going to go home and do this thing, and then I'll have a calmed and quieted soul. The reality is no. The reality is it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be an uphill slog. The reality is you must go to God's word and make it a lifetime pursuit in order for this to happen. This is what we see in the example of King David, time and time again going to God's word, meditating on the simple revealed truths about who God is and applying those when he felt anxious, when he felt beat up, when he felt broken down, when things so far outside of his control were, were weighing him down, he went to the simple revealed truths of God time and time again and applied them to his life and his situation. So final question, we're going to turn to the table. Are you content simply to know God through his word? Or maybe this way, are you content simply to go to God's word and know him through it? Again, friends, the demands of life will come and go. They will. But if you're in Christ, your relationship with your God will know no end. It won't know an end. And so we move our attention to, to the table. 